0: 2. Um, I want to just uh, let you know this is some difficult parables to work through today, all right? Uh, but I'm grateful that I get to be here and open up the scriptures of teaching every one of, of my loved ones. You are my family, and uh, and I'm very, very uh, happy that we can open up the Scriptures together and we can fellowship around the Word of God. So, let's read verse 18. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of, and of the Pharisees fast? But thy disciples fast not. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also sews a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up takes away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man puts new wine into old bottles else the new wine does burst. The bottles and the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. We pick up really, and chronologically, all three synoptics have this right after The scene we just dealt with last week, where he says, They that, where he calls Levi and says, They that have no need, they that are whole have no need of physician, but he came to call sinners. And he was feasting there in Levi's house. And the controversy wasn't just that he was, or just didn't stay with the fact that he was eating with sinners. That wasn't the only controversy that was going on, as we can see. This is connected to that event, as all three synoptics do connect it there. And what it appears to be, this other, this secondary controversy, was that this was some kind of recognized time of fasting. That this feast with the sinners was happening. And I don't know what time it was, But it provoked this uh, engagement by John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees. Now, it could have been established weekly fast. You remember the Pharisees stood up and said in the temple, I fast twice a week. And... So they had weekly fasts where they would, they would recognize these. Or it could have been an annual or recognized monthly fasting. Zechariah, for instance, they came to Zechariah. Should we continue to fast on the fourth and the seventh months as we were when we were in Babylon? So it's not said what kind of fasting, but we surmise that this feasting of Christ with sinners was happening on some kind of recognized fast. Uh, Some of those weekly fasts happen on specific days, I think Mondays and Thursdays, uh, for instance, in preparation for various things. Um, Or the monthly fasts continue to be a part of religious ceremony that was extra-biblical, but they were being recognized by the faithful. So what the controversy then was is that Christ is seen as the denier of Jewish faith and practice. And here it says, And the disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast. That was customary. That word used, is just, there was this customary. Whatever the custom was, uh, it was not necessarily uh, driven by the law, but it was driven by custom. They used to fast, and then they came here and they complained. Why do your disciples fast not? Of course, most likely referring to the direct feasting that they were involved in. Uh, with the publicans so christ again is set at odds with jewish custom christ would later admit in matthew 11 for instance that john did not practice the same way he practiced he said john came neither eating or drinking john had had regimens in which john fasted and John came neither eating and drinking, and, and, and uh, you said he has a devil. And I came eating and drinking, and you say, I what a, he's a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and harlots. No doubt even drawing back to this very scene itself when he was speaking about that very thing. But there was a difference in practice. John was not Jesus. John did not practice the same way or teach his disciples the same way Jesus did. So there so there is this new dynamic of this possible contradiction between John and what John taught and what Jesus was teaching. Uh, so, but there was a rejection of both John and Jesus for for different reasons for these very practices. They reject they rejected John when he came not eating and not drinking, and they they, they rejected Christ when he came eating and drinking. And he gave, of course gave that parable: "You're like children in the marketplace. You you pop, we piped to you and you didn't dance. We mourned to you and you didn't mourn, um, and things of that that aspect." so i don 't want to I want to kind of couch this a little bit it's, it's interesting here that there is this division between those who follow John and those who follow Jesus in this text, according to Matthew. it was in fact John's disciples that led the controversy when it says they came to him. Matthew says it was the disciples of John that were leading the charge to come to jesus and and challenge him on this issue. It says in Matthew nine fourteen, then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do you we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And you can almost hear the dissension in their voice. John still had followers. Amazing as it is, when he points to Jesus Christ, says, This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and some of his disciples began to follow Jesus in John chapter 1, there were still people that stuck by John. They were committed to John. John still had followers. And those followers were not following Jesus, those followers were questioning Jesus. That's interesting. Luke added also the practice of prayer to this, where we can add fasting and prayer, Luke 5:33. But it appears that some of the followers of John did not accept the known testimony in which John gave of Christ. So not everyone who was following John when John pointed to Christ and said, "That's it. This is the one that was coming after me, that was preferred before me." Some of them says, "I don't know about this part of John's teaching, but they still were disciples of John. So they didn't receive the testimony. Just like, by the way, just like Jesus' disciples didn't receive everything that Christ taught them. Right? He says, I'm going to die. He said, no, you're not. And contradicted him. So, so um, there, there was this active division of jealousy and, um, that was starting to develop around this time between these two sects. So a similar controversy, if you want to turn to John chapter 3, which is probably connected to this very same time, arose about the subject of purifying, the ceremonial cleansing, and possibly as it related to baptism, in which the disciples of John were questioning the propriety of people following Christ, because, no doubt, of the differences in practice. And we see there in John chapter 3 and verse 25, Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And whatever that division was, it involved Christ, because it goes on and says, And they came unto John, they, his disciples, came to John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom you bear witness, thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. So whatever this division about purifying was related to people following Christ and related also to John's testimony about Christ. How John answered that dispute is something that we're going to come back to here in a second and is connected with our text, especially the part about the bridegroom. So this was no doubt happening around the very same time that the disciples of John are now challenging Jesus Christ. Um, There was likely an ongoing dialogue with the unbelieving followers of John and Christ uh, after this. Christ will answer the controversy here with three, uh, three parables that are kind of mysterious on the face of them. Mark this here, though, before we look at the parables. Just because one is part of a good movement... Sitting under good preaching does not mean that they embrace truth. Amen? It does not mean that. The disciples of John appeared to dispute the claims of Christ himself, here and elsewhere. They appeared to, in following, in following John, to find more affinity with the self-righteous Pharisees than with the sinners That were being saved by Christ. And despite the authority of the words and the works of Christ, they wanted to know why he was not conforming to them instead of repenting themselves and finding forgiveness from the true baptizer, the one that baptizes with the Spirit. Before we get into the parables, though, I want to say a word or two about the underlying subject of fasting. How many of you all practice fasting? Don't, don't raise your hands. I, I don't want it. It's a good practice. If you all have sugar issues, don't try it. <laughs> try something else. Just a word or two about fasting. Fasting is connected to both the law and the prophets. So we're not saying it's unbiblical to fast. Moses, when he received the law, twice, fasted. Forty days, forty nights. Sound familiar? (laughs) Elijah, in his battle for God, fasted. Forty days, forty nights. Christ himself fasted. Forty days, forty nights. No, but that's not it. We, we find it all throughout. Ezra fasted when he was journeying in Ex, uh, Ezra 8, and when he was dealing with the sins of the people in Ezra chapter 10, verse 6. The Jews in captivity fasted and prayed religiously in certain months, as I mentioned there in Zechariah uh, ch- chapter 7. They fasted on the fourth month, and then fasted again on the seventh month. And unfortunately, that turned into religious activity that was just gone through the motions, and Zechariah rebuked them in that context, or God through Zechariah. Isaiah wrote an entire chapter. Well, it's a chapter to us in our in our Uh, English translations, but Isaiah 58, wrote an entire chapter correcting the wrong use of fasting, the hypocritical use of fasting, and... The right use of fasting to unbind burdens and, to be, and, and and sins and stuff of that matter. If you want something good to study about fasting, Isaiah 58 is the quintessential statement uh, in the Old Testament regarding that. Jesus Christ, according to the Byzantine tradition of the text, in Mark chapter 8, 29, said, This kind comes not out but by fasting and prayer. Paul fasted. He says in fastings, often in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven 27. And Peter fasted in chapter 10 of Acts. Peter was fasting when he had the vision, Acts ten ten. So fasting is not a bad thing. And in fact, our very text is going to say there's a proper place for fasting. Fasting's not a bad thing. And it wouldn't be bad for us to seek the Lord in fasting from time to time, Jesus Christ himself taught some things about fasting and how we should fast, right? He says, don't be as the hypocrites who fast, they disfigure their faces. Oh, I'm so hungry. Look at me, how religious I am. And he says, no, don't do that. Wash your face, comb your hair, uh, and anoint your head is how it said it. Uh, but but uh, but don't appear to men to fast, but appear to God to fast. And the God that sees in secret will reward the Openly, So it's, it's a good practice, it's a biblical practice, and that is not the problem of our text. The problem of our text is that why scriptures encourages fasting for specific reasons. There is no command in the Bible fast. Just like there's no command in the New Testament specifically about tithing things of that nature. And good things like fasting and tithing and things like that, that are good for us to practice, can become a means of self-righteousness if improperly focused on. Here we have these people. We're fasting. You're not fasting. There's something wrong with you. And I want to Well, I want an answer just to get ahead of my, not to get ahead of myself, but Jesus did not give us a harsh faith of asceticism. You all know what asceticism is? Whipping yourself. (laughs) That's what it is. Uh, uh, Starving yourself. You have the the, the desert fathers that would sit there in one position for years and let let bugs crawl over their teeth and stuff like that to let everybody know how holy they were because they denied themselves. Uh, That's asceticism. Jesus did not give us a harsh faith of asceticism, but a vibrant faith of joy that occasions times of fasting. Here it was a stumbling block. So I'm not, whatever we're saying about fasting, we need to cop it. It's a good, encouraged practice. But here's a stumbling block, and it can become a stumbling block. The Pharisee I fast twice a week. It was a stumbling block to the Pharisee. It is a stumbling block here to the disciples of John. Beware that custom, even good custom, does not conflict with Christ. Christ attended a feast. Why was he feasting? Because sinners were being reconciled to him. There's a good reason for feasting there. Christ attended the feast to rejoice with reconciled sinners. And just like the prodigal's brothers, these are standing outside saying, Why the feasting? Why aren't you fasting? They had their sacrifices, but they didn't have mercy. Demanded by the law. With that being said, let's talk about these three parables. Christ first gave the parable of the bridegroom in answer to them Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them As long as they have the bridegroom with them they cannot fast You see the note of reconciliation there the bridegroom's there Since the question directly is why the disciples of Christ, his followers, which at this point in time includes publicans and harlots and sinners, are feasting instead of fasting, then it's easy to surmise that his disciples are the children of the bride chamber. Right? Easy enough? (laughs) Not hard to not hard to figure out. here. that they are the children of the bride chamber, and just as it was appropriate for the going back to Luke fifteen, this is the same, this is the same context. He's eating with sinners, and just like the shepherd's friends were right to rejoice, the woman's friends was right to rejoice, and the servants of the father and supposed to be the elder brother as well should be rejoicing. Here, it's right to be rejoicing, right? We see the parallels between these. It's a suitable occasion. So his parable is pointing out there is a suitable occasion for rejoicing. If you were to throw a wedding and the bridegroom is there and the wedding is happening, you're not going to be demanding people to fast and mourn and supplicate. There's a wedding feast, a celebration. The bridegroom's there. Being joined to his bride. This is a very bridegroom is a prevalent theme in the New Testament, is it not? Uh, The the other parables in different ways capture this. Uh, The king made a wedding for his son, Matthew twenty two. The bridegroom coming, Matthew twenty five, and the virgins waiting on him, Ephesians five, talking about uh, Christ uh, and uh, as uh, loving. Uh, the wife uh, in Revelation chapter nineteen and twenty one, Christ coming with His bride for His bride, and I'm not I, I'm not sure though, and a lot of times people will approach approach a text like this. And they will make this eschatological or ecclesiological, and they'll say, well, uh, if you view this through the lens of uh, dispensational reasoning, then uh, then what this means is the disciples in that day were not the same as the church in our age, and blah, 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 and since G- John said, you know, that he was uh, a friend also of the bridegroom, rejoicing with him in John 3, that John wasn't part of that as well, and, and you get hyper-dispensational where you start cutting away. Way the New Testament and say this is not for us. That's not a good way to approach this. The fact is, is God Christ gave many different parables to talk about many different things, and there's a general meaning to this that's applicable applicable to us and them. So this isn't meant to teach us about the church, it's not meant to teach us about the last days. And it's important not to go around the general point. What is the general point that he has? What's happening, what you're seeing in this feasting is appropriate. It's appropriate, just as it's appropriate for the children, that is, (laughs) the guest at a wedding, to rejoice when the bridegroom's there. It's not appropriate for you to demand that these who who have reason to rejoice mourn. And that's what he was saying in that later parable. We have piped to you and you didn't dance. Okay, well now over here, we have mourned to you and you didn't share our mourning. You didn't, you didn't behave the way we thought you should behave. Let me ask you something. Just put this in context for today. You're planning a wedding, right? You're, you got this wedding plan. You're all this here, feasting and rejoicing. Do you invite more people to mourn? There at the wedding, yeah, people, you, you want people to wear black and put a veil over their face and uh, sing funeral dirges. You see how inappropriate it is, right? That's, that's, that's what Jesus Christ is talking about. There is an appropriate occasion of rejoicing. This sinner repented and came. And this sinner repented and came. And we're finding fellowship together at the table. And why are you sitting there and demanding that they mourn? The children, the friends of the, the friends, and the companions of the bridegroom who accompany him to the house of the bride for the marriage are meant to rejoice with the bridegroom on such an occasion. All of those present at the feast had reason for rejoicing. The disciples already following had reason to rejoice because they were finding a place of repentance and forgiveness. The disciples who would who would. Um, who had newly followed, that is, uh, were, were subjects of grace. As long as that is true, the feasting and the rejoicing is appropriate. The time will come, he says. Now, Jesus is putting his own plug in about fasting. The time will come when the bridegroom's not there, the occasion's over. The time of rejoicing is over and they go back to their mundane lives. The bridegroom is no longer present with them and then it's appropriate for them to fast. May I say this? There's an appropriate time for you all to fast. Are you struggling with some sins? Why don't you fast and pray about it? There's some things that you really are seeking God and you're not feeling His presence and knowing and realizing His presence right now. Why don't you fast and pray about it? Set aside a meal. Set aside two meals. Don't eat from sun up to sundown. However you want to practice, there's no, no one way. Uh, go on juice for a while. or I, I, I don't know. But however it is that you want to fast, there, there are appropriate times right now for you to fast. And Jesus even said so. Their time comes. You know, the Christian life is a life of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, but the Christian life will have its sorrows. And there will have those times where you need to seek the face of your God, the face of your Savior. And you need His presence. You need His answer. And that is an appropriate time. John was being scandalized around this very same time. Turn to John 3. We already turned to John 3. You might already still be there. But I want us to see that John apparently says the same thing to his disciples that they had already heard from Christ or were about to hear. I would imagine John's not all-knowing, so this must have already been widely known. But how did John answer them? John three twenty seven. This is about the, the, the thing about purifying, the controversy of Purifying. John answered and said, verse 27, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, does this sound familiar at all? <laughs> but the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy is fulfilled. He says, I am one of those that are rejoicing at what he's doing. There is an occasion for rejoicing. And again, this isn't dispensational chopping up and saying that this person belongs here and these teachings belong here. This is just engaging with with the parable he says i am one of the people that are stand by and rejoicing at what the bridegroom is doing john counted himself joyous especially in the presence of the one of a kind bridegroom i notice here that each time bridegroom mentions it always has uh, the greek article he's one of the par excellent he is the bridegroom it's appropriate For us to have times of fasting when the needs arise, but let us remember that there is a place of rejoicing, an abiding place of rejoicing in Christ. I need to watch the clock, I'm sorry. Christ sees the specific time ahead uh, where we'll need to diligently pour out our hearts unto Him. And remember the Christian... uh, Remember the Christian... uh, Imperatives, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. There are time for each. But here he says the time is not appropriate. Second parable, and now these will go more quickly, even though they're a little bit more enigmatic. The second parable, he says, no man also sews a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up, takes away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And this parable turns to the specific work of Christ. He's, he's kind of shifting. That word also there kind of gives this idea that he's shifting a focus here. Uh, this and the last parable are kind of go hand in hand. The last parable just adds a adds a necessity to something afterwards. Now, The attempt to add the new thing to the old thing, or rather to have the old thing contain the new thing, will destroy that which is old and waste that which is new. Simple enough, right? This has to do also with a matter of propriety. Because he adds that propriety at the end of verse 22. But new wines must be put into new bottles so we can kind of figure these parables out just by putting them together what are the elements what is the new patch and the new wine what are the old garments and the old wine simple parallels both of them have are described by new and old It's hard to comprehend that this is talking about the disciples directly. It seems contextually to address the broader issue of fasting and religious observances and how they relate to Christ. And I want to just say this just by putting this out there. Christ did not come to reform. He came to transform. He came to make all things new. He did not come to sew a new piece of garment onto an already fading and torn garments. There are a lot of places we can go here, like Corinthians and and in uh, Hebrews and things like that. But he does; he makes all things new. The law was a fading thing. Hebrews brings that out. It, 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 it was. It was being made obsolete. All the cir- all, all, all the ceremony, everything else like that was coming to an end to be fulfilled completely by Christ. And those that were challenging Christ at this time were still saying, well, if only we just, if only you started doing this observance or or that observance, or we add this new practice or that new practice, then that would be sufficient for making us righteous. And myriads of new standards and new traditions took shape and were sewed to the old garment, thinking that this would suffice, like Adam sewing his fig leaves together. If only we just add this one more leaf, it'll, it'll all shape together and cover our shame. And the adding of a new patch only made the rip a little bit worse each time. I want to admit something I'm not a tailor. So uh, I'm just assuming the truth of what Christ is saying here, and I must assume it. Uh, but I imagine if you take a new, and the idea is an unshrunk cloth, so it, so it's just freshly sewed together, it's, it's, and you take and then you put it on an old garment, what happens? It'll just rip all the way around the perimeter of the new cloth, won't it? Uh, the patch indeed takes away. Christ is the new covenant, brings a new covenant based upon better promises. Uh, there's a note of interest here. No note of interest here as far regarding the synoptics. Uh, Matthew says the same thing. Luke says the same thing, only to say the new and old do not agree with one another. And that's not saying that the law does not agree with the gospel. The law is the schoolmaster that leads. But it's talking about ceremon- ceremonially reliance on all these things customs and all these ceremonies and everything else does not agree with the new work that is being done and only makes the state of men worse men were already guilty before the law and adding new things to it only makes the breach worse Christ though provides newness of life the new is not out of the old it wholly replaces the old he gives us a garment of his righteousness, not, add, not anything added to the rent in our righteousness. And therefore, we walk in the, not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of spirit, Romans 7, 6. So I want to just say something about the last parable. And then I want to give you an Old Testament reference that ties all these themes together. The last parable: No man puts new wine into old bottles. That's what they did. The, the skins, the bottles. Uh, I think the Latin word for, we have for bottle was uh, was the same word referred to these skins. Um, hence, the translation "bottle." There, uh, the, and the wine is, or the wine is, or it bursts the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. This is a new. We we are almost see christ's very words that would later be uttered this is the new covenant in my blood as he took the cup of wine and passed it this is the new covenant in my blood in the second parable he showed that he was not intending to be a reformer but to transform and make all things new but now the sinner is made whole Shown to the sinner made whole by Christ is shown to be the only receptacle for the work of God. That's what wine represents. Wine represents the blessings of God. Psalm 104, verse 15 and 15. Wine is is a blessing that comes from God, and it's intended to be put into men. Matthew says both new wine and no, eh, eh, both both wine and the new wine skins are preserved. Without a new bottle, the wine is not contained. The new covenant was intended to be put into the hearts. What did he say? The new covenant, Jeremiah 33, says, I will put my law in your hearts. I will write it in your hearts. By hearts made new, Ezekiel 36, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If the sinner is made whole by God, God has, by His grace, created a place to pour His blessings in. The work of God is not intended to be added to those under the condemnation law. Without being made new, they will break. The wine is spilled. Or as Luke says in the same boat, but new wine must be put into new bottles and both are preserved. The new work of God is resisted by men what is luke added this he says no man also having drunk old wine straightway desires new looking at the people he was talking to you still want the old wine you don't want you don't want the new blessings where you say for he says the old is better but there's a new work among men being done i want you to turn to isaiah 43 and we will stop The scene here is of that new work being done among men. Here's the publicans, the tax collectors, the sinners, the harlots, the rough fishermen. All of these feasting with Christ, having forgiveness with him, reconciled to him, rejoicing with him. I want you to pause and consider before we read here in Isaiah 43 what Christ has said about himself in these parables. He has said that his presence with his disciples was an occasion for joy. Amen? He calls himself the bridegroom. The one there who makes the occasion joyous. That's what he has said about himself he is saying that he has come to do a brand new work. A work that he does which requires for people to be made whole in order to receive it. And on the heels of him declaring that he has the power to forgive sins, all three synoptics deal with these stories one after another because they are connected. He has the power to forgive sins. He has the power to make whole. And he's come to call sinners to repentance. We circle back just to the truth that what we have here in this section of the scriptures, regardless of what people say, well, Mark was written first, and you know, then people added after Mark that Christ was Lord and Christ was God. No, what we have here is high Christology, as high as you can get. Christ is Lord. In that spirit, I want you to think about the parables that we just read. And let's read Isaiah 43, starting in verse 15. Yahweh is speaking. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel your king. Thus says the Lord, which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as towel. By the way, he's talking about about the the coming of the Messiah, by the way, what the Messiah will do. Remember ye not the former things. Remember ye not the former things. Neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I even will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I will give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to, drink, to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. And in verse 25, I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions for mine own sake. And will not remember thy sins. Now, consider this entire section from the paralytic man to the statements that are given in these parables at the end about him not adding new old cloth and new garments, not putting new wine into old bottles, but doing a brand new work. This is what is being brought forth. This is the mission of the Messiah. This is Christ. This is Yahweh of the Old Testament now with his people, a point of rejoicing, making all things new. That is our Lord. I pray. I don't have anything else. I just wanted to make that connection at the end. Let's go ahead and stand. And we'll be dismissed.